0: Louise McSharry on 2FM. The book, The Authority Gap, probes why women are taken less seriously than men, from mansplaining to continually having to prove your right to even be at the table, simply blaming women for not being confident or assertive enough and just telling them to lean in is far too simplistic. But there is hope. And I spoke to author Marianne Seigart, who joins me now to discuss the book. And I started by asking her, why did she write it? What was her experience?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, the book's not really about me. It's about womankind. And, you know, in some ways I've been quite well insulated from the authority gap, from this phenomenon of women being taken less seriously than men, because for a very long time I was a columnist um, on the Times newspaper in the UK. And so if you're given authority by, you know, a, a big national institution like that, then it's harder for people not to take you seriously. But I do tell the odd story in the book. So, for instance, there was one when um, I was at a conference and uh, I was talking to two male delegates and one was a former head of the British Foreign Office and one was a BBC foreign correspondent. So they knew far more about foreign affairs than I did. But I probably had the edge on UK domestic politics because I was a political columnist at the time. And this other delegate came up to us, completely ignored me. I mean, literally turned his back on me, looked at the two men and said, can I ask you a question about British politics? Could Tony Blair ever make a comeback? So I answered because I was the expert in that group. And I said, no, not a chance. And I explained why, composition of the Labour Party, blah, blah, blah. He could barely bring himself to look at me as I answered. And when I finished, he asked a follow up question of the two men. And so I actually touched him on the arm. So he had to look at me and I said, look, I'm actually the British political columnist in this group. I, I Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: Do you think it's better in those situations to, to challenge them? Is that is that what women should do? Because I think we've all had experience of that and I watched your TED Talk on mansplaining and I think it's, it's fantastic that there's a word for that now and I could relate to so much of it. Um, I'm a sports journalist and I always get asked when I say what I do, do I like sport? And nobody would ever ask a man who's a sports journalist, do they like sport? And it's every single time. And from listening to you, from now on, I'm going to answer that question with, would you ask a man that? And, and do you think that that's what we should be doing?
1: I definitely do. Funnily enough, I interviewed um, a sports editor of uh, a national newspaper here in Britain, who the first woman sports editor. And she once had a plumber around to fix her loo. And he asked her what she did. And she said she was a sports editor. Blimey, he said, you must know as much about sport as I do. <laughs> 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 That maybe not. Um, No, you, we, we've just got to start calling it out. So the reason I've written this book is that every woman has had these sorts of experiences, you know, being underestimated and having her expertise challenged and being interrupted and talked over and being ignored when she makes a point. And it's just got to stop, right? It's just got to stop. But it's only going to stop if we start calling it out and just drawing attention to it and saying, look, you know, please treat me with the same sort of respect that you treat a man. That's all we're asking for, just a bit of equality.
0: And now that the word mansplaining is in our vocabulary, I do wonder, because we're all familiar with it now and men are familiar with it as well, are they more cognizant now that it's a thing and are they, maybe stop- are they going to stop doing it?
1: Well, I think they'll only stop doing it if we do call them out on it when they do it, because I think a lot of the time they don't realise they're doing it. I think we need to cut them some slack. You know, they've been brought up in a way that makes them feel more entitled than girls and women do. Just to conversational space, to expertise, to running things. That's the way the world has always been. And so they're just used to taking up more conversational space, to being used to being thought of as more expert And so we just need to just alert them when they're doing the sort of thing that actually makes us feel pretty small and, you know, undervalued. You can do it quite nicely. You can say, well, actually, I do know quite a lot about this subject, so you don't need to explain it to me. Um, Or, you know, could you please let me finish my sentence because I was trying to make a point, you know, when they interrupt you, that sort of thing. But you do. What really helps actually is if you're at work and someone else stands up for you. So what we really need is allies around the table. Uh, it doesn't have to be a woman. In fact, it's even better if it's a man. You know, if, if a man says, oh, hang on, I just wanted to hear what Marianne was saying there, then that really helps. Or indeed, if you, you know that classic thing of you make a point, nobody takes a blind bit of notice. Ten minutes later, man makes exactly the same point <laughs> and it's treated like the second coming. Right.
0: I was going to say, they'd yeah. say, there's a lot of women listening to this right now and they are nodding their heads in agreement because they've all been there. Everyone will have that exact experience. Just when you mentioned there about how men and women are now and just how men were are just used to having more of the conversation, does that all stem back maybe to the way that girls and boys are raised? That girls are often told to be, you know, nice and quiet and to play quietly, whereas boys are encouraged to be a bit more exuberant.
1: That is so true. And
0: even in the classroom,
1: in fact, particularly in the classroom, uh, there was an academic who, who observed something like seven months of one classroom and found that boys were called to talk by the teacher nine times more than girls. So boys are rewarded for talking and girls are rewarded for being good and quiet, you know, sitting at the back of the class and working hard. And so no wonder boys grow up with a sense of, you know, entitlement to conversational time and girls grow up thinking oh you know I mustn't draw attention to myself keep my head down work hard and uh, yeah it it makes an enormous difference so in every public setting whether it's work or educational or parliaments town halls that sort of thing men talk for a disproportionate amount of time and women talk for a disproportionately little amount of time
0: you know, I, I think there's no denying that we are part of the problem as well, that we are unconsciously part of the bias. And it is probably because we're just not used to hearing women, seeing women, just that exposure to women in positions of power, in positions of authority and just naturally getting that respect that men do. So we need to, I'd imagine as well, to maybe take a bit of ownership of that as well and try and change. Absolutely. Do you know we're all we've all got this unconscious bias
1: because we've all been brought up in a world in which men are basically in charge and probably our father worked more than our mother, probably he earned more than her more than her, maybe he had more authority at home. So these assumptions are hardwired into our brains whether we're male or female. Uh, I mean, in some respect, in in, in in some psychological studies, men have been shown to be more biased than women. But in general, we all harbour this bias and it's called unconscious for a reason. You know, we don't do it deliberately and we can't even tell it's there. But what we can do is notice when it manifests itself. So notice if when we walk up to a man and a woman standing together, we just automatically address the man first rather than the woman and therefore called him more authority, you know. Uh, notice if we interrupt women more than we interrupt men. Notice if we're if we're a man and we only read books written by men and hardly ever read books written by women. So men are four times more likely to read a book by a man than by a woman, whereas we women will read them in a ratio of roughly 50-50. We're just as happy to read men as women, but not the other way around.
0: Does social media almost compound that, the fact that... Um, There's probably more men being retweeted on Twitter. There's the men have more followers. Or is it a good thing that we are getting to see and hear women on that platform?
1: Well, a bit of both. But the reason men have more followers and are retweeted more is that men are much more likely to retweet and follow other men than they are women, whereas we don't reciprocate in, you know, helping other women. We, you know, we we again are roughly fifty fifty. Whereas men disproportionately follow and retweet other men. So it's like they're not even letting us into their conversations sometimes. So how are they going to accord authority to what we say or write if they're not even letting us into their newsfeed or they're not even reading our books? Somewhat... This is not all men, by the way, but some on average.
0: Yeah i I would hope as well that th- it's a generational thing in ways. Maybe that when the next generation come through, that because there will be, because women now have more confidence as well to to stand up and be seen and, and be heard. And look, things are changing very, very slowly, but we are seeing women in more positions and we're getting educated by books like yours as well, that maybe the next generation might have a little bit more of an awareness of what's going wrong and the challenges that women face. Would you feel the same?
1: Well, I had, I had assumed this and I had really hoped it. When I started researching the book, I thought this will all sort itself out in time, but we can just hurry it up a bit if we become more aware of it. But it's all going to sort itself out in time because young people aren't sexist in the way that old people are. And tragically, this isn't really true. So while it is true that young women are better at standing up for themselves and are just sort of braver and less prepared to toe the line probably than the generation above them, that in itself has created a bit of a backlash Amongst young men. And so, you know, I interviewed some university students, female university students for the book, and they said shocking things to me like, oh, the guys just don't think that we're their intellectual equals. And I thought, what? Girls outperform boys all the way through school and university and in masters and postgraduate degrees. And these boys are acting as if the girls are not their intellectual equals. That was quite scary. And that's anecdotal. But then I also came across a study of biology students and they were asked to nominate two of the smartest and best informed members of their cohort, you know, of their year. And girls did it very accurately. Boys were much more likely to choose another boy, even if a girl was smarter and better informed than he was. It's as if they're just trying to block out young women's achievement.
0: What's Really concerning for me anyway, and I'd say for a lot of people, is that you have featured some of the most influential, powerful women in the world, like Hillary Clinton, like Lady Hale, like Sherry Blair, and they have all experienced this throughout their careers as well. It's it's a little bit depressing almost. Well,
1: it is. And the the reason I interviewed these people, these women, as long as as well as quite a few women, you know, who aren't so distinguished, So it wasn't just sort of elite, but I deliberately wanted to talk to them because I thought if they've experienced it, that really is proof that the whole of womankind does, you know, even if you're that successful. So there was a classic example from Louise Richardson, who you may know, she's Irish, Um, and she runs the University of Oxford, which has just been um, uh, um, rated as the best university in the entire world, I think, yesterday. So, huge job, very, very prestigious. And she was presiding at what's called congregation, which is like the sort of parliament of the university, very, very formal setting, 350 people. She literally sits on a throne, okay? And there she was giving a speech at congregation when a much more junior male member of staff interrupted her in mid flow and said, No, you've got it wrong. You should be reading this. And she said, Thank you, but I've got it right. And she continued. And the next day she said to him, I was just thinking about this last night. Would you have interrupted a male vice chancellor in front of 350 people in such a formal setting to correct him when you've never even done this before? And I've done it a dozen times before. Would you have done that to a man? She said, I'd like you to do that mental experiment. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was my first time. Precisely, she said, it was your first time. You shouldn't have done it.
0: Another woman that you interviewed was former Irish President Mary MacAleese and her experience with Pope John Paul II, it was far from ideal. I'd actually probably go a little bit further and say it was, it was pretty shocking.
1: It was pretty shocking. OK, so she was leading a delegation to meet the Pope and she was in the Vatican in the audience room, very, very formal again, standing in line. Pope comes in with a cardinal and is about to be introduced to Mary MacAleese, and instead He sticks his hand out to her husband, who's standing next to her, and says, wouldn't you rather be president of Ireland rather than married to the president of Ireland? Her husband knew better than to take his hand. The delegation were completely stunned by this. And so Mary McAleese grabbed the Pope's hand, which was hovering in midair, and said, let me introduce myself. My name is Mary McAleese, the elected president of Ireland, elected by the people of Ireland, whether you like it or whether you don't. And he said afterwards, oh, I was just making a joke. I thought you had a sense of humour. <gasps> Which is the classic thing. I bet you've had this happen to you before. Someone does something really sexist and then says, oh, I was only joking. Haven't you got a sense of humour? As if it's your fault somehow. And she said, I do have a sense of humour, but that really wasn't funny. And you wouldn't have done it to a man.
0: There's a little bit of solace in that, in the fact that she was the president of Ireland, that she was elected by the people and that she was in that position and could say that it you know it's it's probably the only small positive that i can take out of that situation at the start of your book Marianne you challenged the idea that women are naturally not best suited to leadership roles was that to address the elephant in the room just head on get it out of the way
1: yeah yeah and no, i did a whole chapter basically refuting the sort of sexist idea that women just aren't as good as men. And that's why we don't accord them as much authority. And uh, so, the, so the book is full of really rigorous research studies. Great sort of ammunition uh, for those of us who want to argue this case. And actually, when you look at huge studies of female leaders, you know, 60,000 leaders, sorry, leaders in general, uh, women on the whole outperform men. And in fact, they outperform men in 18 out of the 19 categories of leadership <laughs> On average, not hugely, but they do. So they are absolutely as good and in some ways better leaders than men.
0: I know the gender pay gap is a related issue and it, it's easier to, to, to find it and to chart it. We had a big thing here in Ireland last week where the Ireland men's and women's soccer team were given equal pay. It's not a huge amount of money. The men took a little bit of a pay cut and the uh, football association matched up. The girls themselves, the women came out afterwards and said, look, it wasn't about the money. It was about parity, equality, equality of opportunity. Do those things matter, though? Like it was a big statement in the grand scheme of things. Do you think that things like that have an effect on the status quo?
1: Oh, I I do. I mean, I think I think it's fantastic the way women's sport has taken off really in the past five or 10 years. Many, many more people interested in it, more people going to watch it. I mean, you looked, looked at the women in the Olympics and they were just fantastic, weren't they? I was listening to a radio programme on the BBC this morning about women's football, because until the early 70s, it was actually banned. Girls and women weren't allowed to play football. So we have come a long way. All I'm saying is we've still got quite a way to go.
0: We really do. And look, it's something that really stuck out to me in the book was as part of your research, you spoke to two academics, one assigned male at birth and the other assigned female at birth. And they both went underwent gender transition part way through their careers. What happened after that to their careers?
1: Okay, so Ben Barris, who was a neuroscientist, sadly died very recently, said, I've had the thought. So he transitioned to begin living as a man. He said, I've had the thought a million times I'm taken more seriously now. He said, my work is taken more seriously. The same damn work, as he put it, is taken more seriously. I can even finish a sentence without being interrupted by a man. And someone was overheard who didn't know his history at the back of one of his seminars saying, oh, Ben Barris gave a great seminar today, but then his work's much better than his sister's, i.e. himself. <laughs> Meanwhile, Joan Roughgarden, who is an evolutionary biologist, transitioned in the opposite direction and having been very successful academically, and she, she, well, when she was living as a man, uh, had a seat on the University Senate committee, was very well paid, was very well respected, found everything started slipping once she started living as a woman. So her relative pay fell, she came off the University Senate committee, she found it much harder to get grants for her work. But most shockingly, she found... Both she and her work were attacked very personally and very sort of viciously in a way that had never happened to her before when she was living as a man. So, you know, once she gave an academic lecture and a man jumped up on the stage and started shouting at her. And other times she was told, oh, you just don't you haven't read the literature or you don't understand the, the maths. And she said that would never have happened to me when I was living as a man. And she said, to "Start with." I thought, "Well, if women are discriminated against, I'm damn well going to be discriminated against too." And quite soon, she said, "The novelty of that has worn off." I can tell you. And her 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 conclusion was: men are assumed to be competent until proved otherwise, and women are assumed to be incompetent until they prove otherwise. And I just think this is such a good way of proving the existence of the authority gap, because. In normal circumstances, suppose you're a woman and your male colleague gets promoted and you don't and you think, oh, I'm sure that was sexist. But it's really hard to prove because maybe your manager will say, well, he's just better than you or he's more experienced than you. But with these trans people, they are exactly the same person with the same ability, intelligence, personality, experience, body of work. And the only thing that has changed is their gender. So a scientist would say you've controlled for all the other variables. And you've isolated the one that matters. And it really changes people's perception of them and the way they get treated.
0: Marianne, I don't know how you wrote this book without absolutely despairing at every turn because it does seem like it does seem like it's just really, really grim for women um in not just in the workplace, but just in general, when you think of all the challenges that we have to overcome just to prove that we're as competent as men. Well, I just think there, you know, that there, there, there will be a way
1: through if we start noticing our biases. So, you know, male managers, for instance, at the moment, 70% of them will evaluate a man as being better than a woman, even when they've achieved the same goals, right? So that's really depressing for us. Even if we're as good as a man, a male manager is more likely to think the man is better. But if the male manager finds out about this research, maybe even reads my book or gets told <laughs> about it by someone who has, you know, he might start to think, Okay, maybe the reason I think John is better than Rachel is because I've got this bias. So maybe I should think about it a bit more carefully. Let's just look at what each of them has actually achieved. Let's not judge them on which is more confident or more self-promoting. Let's actually look at their real competence and decide on that basis. So you've got to sort of correct for your instinctive hunches and, and basically not make decisions on hunches but just do it a bit more scientifically so we kept all i'm saying is you, i've got 140 solutions in the back of the book <laughs> as to how we could narrow the authority cap it can be done but each of us just has to undertake to to, to look at our own behavior and if necessary change it bit by bit and it, you know it's it's a bit like learning not to slump at your desk you catch yourself doing it you sit up straight. Catch yourself doing it. You sit up straight, and gradually you get used to sitting up straighter. That's all I'm asking everyone to do.
0: And just for people that might be half listening and think that we're man bashing, we're not. And I, and I know that you're keen to emphasise that closing the authority gap—it's better for them too. Yeah, this is the actually this is the happiest thing I discovered doing my research is so you would think that
1: gender equality was like a seesaw right so if women rise men will fall and you completely understand why men might be resistant to falling but it's actually not like that at all it's not a zero-sum game it's a it's actually a positive sum game in which everyone wins because if you look at research looking both at more gender equal countries and more gender equal relationships where the the man and the straight relationships, obviously, where the man and the woman share the chores and the childcare and that sort of thing more equally. Not only are the women happier and healthier, which you might expect, and the children are happier and healthier. they do better at school, they have fewer behavioral difficulties, but the men are happier and healthier. So they're twice as likely to say they're satisfied with their life. They're half as likely to be depressed they're much less likely to get divorced. They drink less, they smoke less, they take fewer drugs, they sleep better at night. And this is a real clincher, they get more frequent
0: and better sex. So guys, (laughs) what's not to like? Join in on this. Marianne, I think that is the perfect place to wrap up our interview today. Thank you so much for coming on the show and also for just taking the time to write that book and doing all of the research because a serious amount went into it. The bibliography is 31 pages alone. So we really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and best luck with whatever comes next for you. Thank you. It's been a delight. Lovely to talk to you. Louise McSherry on 2FM.